Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Right after my last podcast was released, and that was my interview with John Fulweiler on documentation and registration and titling of your boat, I got a quick email from my friend Dan Culpepper who told me the following. So this is a clarification. Hey Franz, I'm listening to your podcast about U.S. documentation and I think there should be a correction about the built-in U.S. requirement you discussed. I think the official line is that evidence that a vessel was built in the U.S. is required for a vessel which is to be used in the fisheries or coastwise trade. My Beneteau 50 used for recreation was built in France but is a U.S. documented vessel. I think the owner being a U.S. citizen is the important issue. Hope this clarifies things a bit. Love the show as always. Regards, Dan. Dan, thanks for pointing that out. And you know, you're right. Uh, and, and my two instances of documentation have been my personal boat and then the boat that I registered for the fishery industry when I had a brine shrimp industry on the Great Salt Lake. And that was required to be a U.S. built vessel for documentation on that boat. So thanks for the clarification on that. If you have some questions of a legal nature that you have for John, send them on in. I'll forward them to him, and in our next podcast, he may answer those for you. If you're just starting out sailing and want to learn a little bit about sailing at no cost, if you want to sign up for my email list on the homepage, which is medsailor.com, in the upper right-hand corner of the webpage, you give me your name and email address, And with that, it'll take you to a link that will allow you to download the first eight lessons of sailing, learn to sail, basic keelboat certification, lessons for the ASA 101 exam. This is half of the course. It's not the full course. It's only half of the course. But it's three hours and 18 minutes in total length of audio instruction. And that will get you through the terminology, some of the basic maneuvers. I'm not sure if it covers rules of the road or not. I think that may be the next eight lessons where we start going into that. But anyway, it's free if you want to sign up for the email list. Now don't go sign up for the email list and then immediately unsubscribe before I've even sent you anything. If that starts happening, I'll just take the offer down entirely. But this is just to try to help you learn some of the terminology and give you a sense of my teaching style. Over the years, I've often read reviews of the podcast and I've been a little bit hamstrung. It used to be that you could go into iTunes and log in in different countries and see what the reviews were in different countries. So for the last couple of years all I've been able to see are the reviews that have been written in the United States and I knew there were other reviews out there but I just had no way of, of finding them without paying a, a service for it. Well I found a a free service in beta that let me put in my podcast and see the international reviews for that. And and one that came in today, interestingly enough, was from France. And I'm going to read it, along with a 
a few of the others because I was really surprised of the reach of this podcast and, and, and the international scope of this podcast. But the one that came in today read, your show is great, dot, 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 but we really do not care about your opinion on taxes in the EU. A part of that, you must talk about Corsica, one of the finest islands in the Western Med. Maladina Arpelago is also nice. Regards from Marseille, Archimalaca from France. Well, Archimalaca, thanks for your comment. It's probably, the, the taxes are probably not important to you in the EU, but they are important to United States citizens that have U.S. boats sailing in Europe. And quite honestly, that's the bulk of my audience. So I will continue to ask about <laughs> VAT taxes on boats and try to clarify what is an extremely opaque area of law. If you'd put things down very simply, it would be easy, but, uh, but it's not. It's very opaque. So, But I appreciate your comment. And regarding Corsica, I am not qualified to talk about Corsica. If you have some information you'd like to share with us on Corsica, why don't you drop me an email and let me do an interview with you on Corsica. I've been to Bonifacio, and that's the only place in Corsica I've been. And that's when I was going through the Bonifacio Straits. I saw that big, beautiful fortress castle guarding the entrance to that tiny little narrow harbor. And we poked our way in there for a couple nights and enjoyed that part of Corsica. But I have not sailed the other parts of Corsica, so I'm not really qualified to talk about it. And if you have somebody that has a lot of information that we could get on the podcast, I would like to talk to them. Here's a review that came from Mexico. The only review I think I've ever received from Mexico. And this was about, oh, about 18 or 19 days ago. And it says, a highly valuable podcast. I'm just initiating me on the subject of sailing, and this podcast has been a very important source in my dry sailing before starting to get my feet wet in the sea. Franz has an excellent pronunciation and a very pleasant way to present the issues. And then he says the same thing in Spanish. It's from Rafamid in Mexico. Rafamid, thanks a lot for the review. Here's one from Paul at Woody Point in Australia. Thanks. Always love the podcast. I'm new to sailing and always looking for good info, and this doesn't disappoint. Many varied guests would love to hear about shorter trips and what's involved, as I am not at the point where I can take weeks off due to work and a young family. I live on the Morton Bay of QLD, and I think that means Queensland. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for the review. Here's one from Germany, from Toby01234. And it says, must hear for everyone into sailing. It's about two months old. Hi all, very interesting podcast about sailing. Next to his own accounts of sailing in the Mediterranean, Franz covers a huge variety of different topics with his interview partners from cruising around the world over boat gear to accidents in a younger maritime history. Thanks a lot, Franz. Carry on. Thanks, Toby. I have quite a few others here from overseas, and I've been negligent in not thanking the people for writing the reviews, but this is the first time I've seen them. Here's one from Dark Side Doug in Canada. Good stories and interviews. Franz is the host of Sailing in the Mediterranean. He is an interesting host and has a real depth of sailing experience and has some very interesting interviews. If you're interested in sailing, you might like this podcast. I've been sailing off and on since I was a kid. I stopped in my 20s when I moved away from the ocean now living on the Atlantic again, I have the bug. Franz's podcast has provided education and entertainment for me, 
when I can't get on the water. Also, I was thrilled with the interview with Brian Toss. I had Brian's original book back in the 90s and carried it around with me for years. Thanks so much for the interview with Brian. Darkside Doug from Canada. Hey, Doug, I have that exact book still on my boat, and it's falling apart. I'm going to buy Brian's new one when it comes out, but I'm still going to keep the original one. Now, here's one that really came as a surprise to me from Korea, Jake McLennan. That doesn't sound like a Korean name, but he says, been enjoying for a year or two. I've been enjoying Franz's podcast for nearly two years, having grown up reading Homer and the history of the ancient civilizations of the Mediterranean. I can think of no more exciting and interesting place to explore and imagining Odysseus plying his way from mysterious island to island. I can think of no better way to explore it than by sailboat. Thanks, Franz. You got me dreaming. There's a lot more. I don't want to read them all, but thank you so much. There's another few from Germany. There's one from Great Britain. A few from Great Britain, actually. Another one from Canada. Another one from Ireland. Maybe I'll read some more of them next week, but I don't want to bore you with them. But I do read those reviews, and I appreciate the people that take the time to go and write reviews. Thank you so much for your efforts. All right, this week we're going to be talking about cruising the French canals. And then next week, I had a specific request from a listener that wrote me an email, and he said, Franz, you've covered a one-week charter out of Dubrovnik. How about covering a one-week charter out of Split? So this is going to be what I cover next week, is my idea of a one-week charter out of Split. And when you're in Split, you have really two choices, going south or going north, and I'll try to cover both of those in one podcast. So that's what I plan on doing next week. If you have suggestions for people I should interview, please drop me a note. If you have stories yourself that you're willing to share with our audience, I'd like to talk to you. I prefer that you have Skype connections. I had an interview lined up this week with Tom, who has the site on Eurocanals, which is mentioned in this podcast. I got him on the phone, and he didn't have Skype, so I had no way of recording him. I called back on his regular landline, and because Skype doesn't identify who the call comes from, the call would not go through. So until he comes up with a solution for the communications issues, I can't really interview him. But Skype gives me a relatively good quality of audio. So if you do want to be interviewed or if you know people that would be interested in being interviewed, that's sort of a prerequisite from my perspective. All right, let's get on to my interview with Brian and Stephanie on sailing detour and cruising the French canals. So today I'm talking with Brian and Stephanie on sailing boat detour. And they have a website called blog.sailingdetour and a couple other websites as well. You started, as I can understand it from your website, you started sailing in about 2014 and I was looking at the maps, you've covered a lot of area. First of all, tell our listeners about yourself and how you got involved in sailing and just tell us where you're at right now and what it's like right now. Brian, take it away. Okay, well, um, Brian, uh, I'm Brian, and this boat, we've been sailing since 2014, but this is actually the second boat that Stephanie and I have lived on and been cruising. Our first boat was east coast of the United States and the Bahamas and the Western Caribbean. We did that for two and a half years and we decided the lifestyle and we uh, moved up to a larger boat and when we found 
the boat we wanted, Detour, was in, in southern France. So we actually um, made a big detour with our lives and flew across to Europe. And we are uh, now, we took the boat north through the canals and we're sailing in, the nor in northern Europe. Okay, and you are you in the Baltic right now? Where are you at right now? Brian? Oh, okay, I lost you. I'm going to call you back again. Hello? Hello, I think uh, we got oh. cut off a little bit there. I think we did. Um, yeah, we're, we're back. Sorry about that. Um, it might be happening at this end. We, uh, connected, we're connected, but uh, not sure. Okay, well, let's uh, continue on and see how we can do um, and how, how the quality of the call can be addressed. We'll continue on. So, so, Brian, where are you at right now? We are currently located in Denmark, uh, on the east coast of Denmark, uh, on the Jutland Peninsula, and we are traveling north on our way to Norway. Some of my most favorite episodes, the most, most uh, listened to episodes, are the episodes where I've talked to people about going through the canals. Now, tell me about the first year you got on your boat in the Mediterranean, where you sailed to, any great stories you have to tell on that year, and then we'll we'll proceed to where you're at right now. We, uh, we found the, the boat that we wanted in Port St. Louis de Rhone in southern France, which was right at the mouth of the Rhone River. And Detour is a special boat because it's a center border. We have, we have a really shallow draft when the board's up. And we got this idea in our heads that we could take the boat through the canals to get to northern Europe. And we took the mast down, and we started up the Rhone River um, about a year ago, in April of last year. And we had a, a great time going up the Rhone River and the Sone River and through the Vosges Canal to the city of Nancy. And we continued on on the Meuse River down into Belgium and out into the Netherlands, where we finally got to put the mast back up. Now, how many years did that take you? So we did that, that whole trip, we did that in uh, three months of traveling time, actually. Wow, that's a lot of uh, area to cover in three months. It is, and I'm sure that almost any one of those areas could probably use about three months. But uh, we had the, the one summer that we were going to spend in the canals on our way to northern Europe, and so we tried to see as much as we could while we were there. First of all, tell me about the boat. What kind of boat is it? Okay, so Detour is an Alliage 41. It's a aluminum centerboard sloop. Um, it's a staysail sloop, so we have a staysail and a big Genoa. And we have a centerboard that comes up, making it a, a beachable boat, actually. Uh, when the board's up, we draw 0.75 meters, so just about two and a half feet. And with the board down, our draft is about seven and a half feet. And do you travel with the mast on board? We did decide to travel with the mast on board. Um, we had heard a lot of good things about a variety of canal routes, and we weren't actually sure where we were going to come out of the canal system when we started. So we decided we should bring our mast with us instead of shipping it through to the end. Okay. Has that been any problem at any time? Have you worried about it poking out? too far out the front or too far out the back? We worried about it a little bit. Um, 
but we really didn't have any problems with it. Um, the mast is deck stepped, so we only had about three to four feet of overhang on the bow and the stern. Um, it, it did make for a little, little bit of additional fending when we were coming into or leaving locks, however, just because of the shape that a sailboat is, uh, it made for a couple of extra runs up to the front of the bow to make sure we could give a little nudge and, and make sure that the front of the mast wasn't going to touch anything. Okay, yeah, I'm looking at a picture of it, and I see it hangs off the back maybe about, maybe about three or four feet off the back, and I can't quite tell how far it hangs off the front. But it looks like um, you're going through a this is a, I'm looking at your web page, and it looks like you're going through a pretty narrow canal right behind a powerboat. And uh, where, where was that picture taken? Uh, so that was in the Ardennes region um, as we were sort of exiting from France. It was just before we entered Belgium. It was a beautiful, very mountainous area. We did lots of hiking there. Um, it, it was really, really nice area. And actually, it, the funny thing about the mast, the first thing we realized once it was down was that our antenna was also down, and we were going to need the VHF in order to communicate with the lock keepers. <laughs> so, so did you get a handheld at that point in time? Is that how you dealt with that problem, or did you get a, a separate antenna? Yeah, so that we could still use our radio. You covered a lot of area in a short period of time. What would be a typical day? Would you stop at little villages along the way? Tell me about some of your most favorite stops along the way. So uh, depending on the region that we were in, our daily, our daily plan changed a little bit. Um, on the Rhone River, at the beginning of the trip, we did relatively long days. Um, there were, weren't as many stops in between. But as we got farther along, we, would, we did stop at a village pretty much every night mm -hmm. along the way. Um, and all the villages had nice walls or docks or facilities for the canal boats to come and tie up to for the most part. And we or would- Or a shoreline. Or a shoreline. There were sometimes that we actually took uh, iron stakes and put them into the, into the shoreline and just tied our dock lines up to that. Yeah, so more than, once we got off of the Rhone, we started planning shorter mileage days because we were spending a lot of time going through locks. And each lock would take about 15 to 20 minutes for the entire process. So we would really plan our days by how many locks we wanted to do um, and relatively short mileage, sometimes maybe six miles for the whole day, but we would do maybe five to 10 locks, depending on how much ground we wanted to cover. And a lot of times we would stay along shore or stay in a town dock and we would take our bicycles along the canal roads and bike to the next town or the next village. It was really convenient to have bicycles in the canals. Um, there's beautiful bicycle paths well-groomed and maintained alongside. So we really could see a lot that way. Why were you in such a hurry to get through the canals? Uh, was there a destination that you wanted to get to at a specific time? So uh, we really wanted to be in Amsterdam in the middle of August for our sale Amsterdam. They have an event every five years where it's a, a immense gathering of tall ships. Uh, I think there were 70 large tall ships that showed up this year, along with hundreds and hundreds of other smaller ones. And the Dutch bring tons of boats out on the water to, to visit the event. And we really wanted to be there in time to, to witness that. 
Okay, that explains why you went through this area in such a fast period of time. Okay, that, that's a good reason. I was, I was sitting here saying, wow, what great areas you traveled through, but you just sort of did it so quickly. But I can see now that you had a, a logical reason for doing it. Now, let me ask you a question. When you started sailing the canals, did you have to get a license? What was the bureaucracy that you had to deal with in order to, to do the canals? So what we found for that uh, was that we had to really study the European waterways regulations. Uh, these are called the SEVNI rules. And um, we are supposed to be licensed in those, uh, which I did. I studied and take a very brief exam. I think it's about 15 questions um, that you can find uh, available online. And, and they give you a little printout confirmation that you've passed the exam. That basically that you know the rules of the road for the inland waterways. Um, who to give way to, what the signage means, what the lights mean on different ships, uh, those type of things in the inland waterways. And really for pleasure vessels, it's quite simple. Um, everything is signed very well and pleasure vessels can only travel during daylight hours in the waterways. So we don't really have to worry about nighttime navigation. Um, and that was really the only licensure that we had found that was required of the inland waterways. Um, we were required to have a safe boating certificate or an equivalent that was issued, uh, they say, by your home country. So wherever you're from, you need to have whatever license is required to operate a vessel there. Okay, so would that be uh, ASA 104 or a, or a six-pack license or a master's license? Is that the, the sort of license they're looking for? Uh, we think so. It was actually very difficult to get um, a clear answer from from anyone about this, and we we had we both have our safe boating certificates um, from the U.S. Power Squadrons, and on top of that, I also also have a 50-ton master's license from the U.S. Coast Guard. So uh, as it turns out, we were never asked for it, so we don't actually know if that met the requirements or not. Along the way, were you ever inspected or asked for documents? We were not. Um, you do have to purchase a, a usage permit for the canals, and you pay by the month just to get time on the water. And the lock keepers looked for that piece of paper hanging uh, in the cockpit, but that was the only the only document that was asked for. Mm -hmm. And we did have one border clearing when we came into Belgium, um, and we were just asked for our vessel name, vessel length, our names, and our traveled route, and that was it. Did you have to show any proof of paying VAT on your boat? <laughs> Fortunately, we have not yet been asked for that. Um, we have had to show our boat documentation to the Netherlands uh, Customs and Immigration, but they had no questions about VAT. No. Okay, and you've been there in, in the... And our boat is documented in the United States. Okay, when you bought it, when you bought the boat, so you bought the boat VAT unpaid then? No, we, we purchased the boat uh, VAT paid. The boat was built in France. And the original, when the boat was built, it, it was VAT paid. Okay. And we do have the documentation that's associated with, with that original payment of the VAT. Okay. So along the way, did you have 
friends, family come and join you? <laughs> we did actually. Our, our uh, Brian's parents, Bruce and Kathy, came to join us in France. They had a wonderful trip with us when we traveled on the Petite Zone River. Um, and that river was really fun because during their visit, we did our first tunnel. <laughs> we actually did two tunnels with Detour, um, pretty long tunnels. <laughs> so that was an interesting experience to be going under a mountain, under a mountain essentially, on our ocean sailing boat. Um, and the Petite Zone had wonderful stopping places. We could have had our choice of town every evening. Um, so it was just really, really nice uh, beautiful scenery, great food. France really has the best food that we've found <laughs> so far. Um, so we really enjoyed that. And I think Bruce and Kathy really enjoyed that. And just the canal experience of going through tunnels and getting in and out of locks and um, all the locks in France were mostly automated. So we pretty much controlled the locks ourselves when we approached, we'd signal the lock to let it know we were on the way. The lock would prepare itself, and we'd enter the boat on a green light, and the lock would close its doors and lift us or lower us, and that was quite an experience to just get comfortable going through the locks. How would you signal the lock that you were on the way? So when we'd reach an automated section of the canal, uh, the last lock that had a keeper would come out and give us a device that looked uh, like a garage door opener. And as you approach the lock, there would be a little box on the canal bank, and it would say, you know, press here. And you'd point the garage door opener at the box, and it would start the process. The lights would change on the lock to indicate that it was preparing to open. We would see a red over green, which means it had received our signal. And it was emptying of water when you're going uphill so that the doors can open. We had a couple of missed, uh, missed, <laughs> missed buttons where we would be clicking and clicking and we seemed to miss the, <laughs> the contact point, uh, which resulted in a couple of K turns mid canal to turn the boat around and uh, to come back around and try to hit the button again so that the lock would get ready. Would you see much traffic uh, along the canals or did you have it a lot to yourselves? So we had the canals to ourselves a lot, uh, especially early in the season. Uh, we kind of got out there a little bit sooner than most of the boats. Later on in the midsummer, we saw a lot more vessels, a lot more pleasure vessels, uh, but not, not too many. Um, we usually would share the docks with some people, but there was no rafting up. We could almost always find a spot at whichever town we chose along the way. And on the Rhone, there was some commercial traffic as well, large, large gas barges and cargo ships and those types of vessels. But in the smaller canals, there were very few of those. I think we only saw two large commercial vessels going the other direction mm. in the smaller canals, which is quite interesting because when you see them coming towards you, it's this wall of steel that looks like it takes up the entire canal. And when they finally get there, uh, there's plenty of space to be, to be over on the side but when the boat, when the commercial vessel would push past, all of the water would just rush along it. We'd get a current and kind of get sucked past. How fast are the barges going? Are they going about five or six knots, just like you? Or how, is that the? Is there a speed limit in the in the canals? There is a speed limit in the canals. Uh, pleasure boats are limited to 
five knots, and the but the commercial vessels are traveling slower than that. They're traveling, I think, two or three knots, actually. Did you ever have to pass one? We did not ever have to pass one, no. <laughs> we got off to the side and got out of the way. <laughs> okay. okay, so you, you never had to come up on one and actually pass a slower vessel. You just would stay behind them at that point in time. Or did you ever follow one? I think, yeah, I think we usually let, we usually moved aside and, yeah, but and let them go through. Yeah. We had a lot of opposing traffic, actually. It seemed like we were going upstream a lot of the times, yeah. and everyone else was coming downstream. Occasionally, we would end up traveling with another another pleasure vessel for a long time during the day, but we never we never ended up going the same direction as a commercial vessel on any of the small canals. Are you full-time liveaboards, then? We are full-time liveaboards. We've been living on boats since 2012. This will be our fourth year. And our second boat. Do you travel much in the winter or do you tend to stay in, in one location? Well, this was actually our first winter that we spent uh, during the winter season on a boat. We uh, stayed on detour and detour stayed in the water at uh, Sixth Oven, which is located in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Uh, it's directly across the I River from Central Station. So we had some really good access to the city, and we had some good transportation to travel a little bit in Europe this winter. Um, our previous winters were spent in the Caribbean, uh, two of them in the Caribbean, and one of them, when we were transitioning boats, uh, was spent back at our hometown. Uh, we're from Pennsylvania, and we stayed a winter there in between boats. So um, winters have been kind of transitional for us, I think. So you haven't done much sailing in the actual med itself. It's mostly been canal trips so far, and it looks to me like you're heading up to the Baltic. Is that your plans for this summer? Yes, exactly. Um, for whatever reason, we were just very intrigued by Northern Europe, and so when we found a boat in the Mediterranean, we selected the canals as an interesting way to get north uh, rather than stay in the med. So we really started our sailing on detour in the Netherlands, um, and did as much sailing as we could last fall, and then again this spring as we headed towards the Baltic. Uh, we've been in the Baltic now for about two weeks, I think, uh, as we had an early spring start. And we are heading north to Norway, where we'll be joining some fellow members of the Ocean Cruising Club, and we'll be sailing this summer from Bergen uh, northward to the Lofoten Islands. I'll be heading up Sweden and sailing with one of my listeners and friends, Neil, Neil Fletcher, this summer. So it'll be my first time in the Baltic. Oh, great. Yeah. The Baltic, so far, again, we're early in the season, but it's gorgeous. The water is crystal clear. Um, the sailing has been really interesting, trying to kind of learn what the weather patterns are around the fjords uh, is something very new for us. So it's been exciting. Um, Occasionally, we'll come around a corner, and and a fjord will open up on the left side, one of the Danish fjords, and all of a sudden, the wind will make a 30 or 40 degree switch that's just consistent in, in the fjord as we come around the corner. So in the canals that you you, you, you sailed in, what would be the shallowest uh, depth that you, you sailed in? How, how big a boat could go through the canals? Or do you have to have a really shallow draft on the route that you took? So on the route that we took, the, the draft shallowest we saw was about 1.6 meters. Um, 
the French waterways uh, publish dredged depths, and they claim that you can take a two-meter boat through most of most of the canals. Uh, but we definitely saw depths that were shallower than that. Uh, we saw about 1.6. So my five-foot draft, I might be able to squeak through, but I'll have to be careful then. <laughs> yeah, it, we uh, we definitely had the board partway down to improve our steering, and we got it stuck in the mud on on a couple of occasions. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> actually the center board. Was, was really helpful if we had to wait for a lock if there was another vessel coming out because we would move over to the side and the center board would be partially down and it would just stick in the mud and so the boat would stop and we'd say okay great don't move don't touch anything <laughs> <laughs> let's just hang out right here until this boat comes out and when it was time to go again we'd pull the center board up six inches and, <laughs> and, and go, go straight in <laughs> Yeah, standing still waiting for a lock is one of the hardest things to do. I've had to do it only only a couple times, but just standing still is really hard. Oh, it's really challenging. We had us both at the wheel trying to figure out who could stand still the longest without getting stuck turning around because some of our canals are pretty narrow. <laughs> yeah, I bet you, I bet it's hard to to turn around in these canals. In fact, some of them look like they're almost too too narrow to turn around. I guess you have to do a multi-point turn to, to turn around on some of these. Yeah, if we wanted to turn around, it was definitely a, a multi-point turn with, with someone at the bow saying how much, <laughs> how much clearance we had in, in that direction. And getting the boat to, to spin was a, was a real trick. <laughs> Let me ask I you. I think our narrowest. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead, Stephanie. Well, I was going to say, I think, our, I think our narrowest canal was the Vogue Canal. Went over the Vosges mountain range and um it was we were pretty much by ourselves i think we saw one other pleasure boat the entire canal and that one was very difficult to turn around in. and that one we had to really choose our days by how many locks we wanted to do because the locks would lift and lower the boat over little sets of mountains so they would be in series so the first lock would prepare the next lock so we had a couple of series locks where there would be 14 in a row and so you'd go up and you'd see the next one and you'd exit, and you'd enter the next one, and you'd go up, and you'd see the next one, and you just keep going up these little lock steps of about ten meter lift each no, time. Each each lock lifted about three meters. Three meter lift, sorry. And there they would have a pool of water in between the locks that was a, a little bit less than a quarter of a mile to get from one lock to the next, and they call them feeder basins, and that was where the lock would draw the water from to to fill the downstream lock. Yeah, and actually one of our most favorite stops was uh, the large basin that feeds the, um, the Vosges Canal. Um, it was the Reservoir Ouzé. It was a beautiful stop and it had a nice pleasure boat dock and you could walk around the whole basin, a big, beautiful natural lake. And it was just filled with people along the beaches and walking trails in the woods and it was a fabulous day to just spend by the lake. The Vosges Canal was really in in the woods. It was like taking an ocean boat into the woods. One night we stopped along the shoreline at a campground and we had a campfire pit and a picnic table next to us. <laughs> we were just there docked at a campground. <laughs> it was the funniest thing. So I know a lot of listeners uh, want to live your lifestyle. <laughs> I mean, it's an ideal lifestyle. Uh, how did you choose to become liveaboards? 
And was this always your plan or how did you develop into being a, a full-time live aboard? So when, when I was in, I think the sixth grade, my family did a bear boat charter in the British Virgin Islands. And it was a fantastic vacation. We had a great time and we had hired a skipper. Uh, nobody in my family really knew how to sail that well at the time. And the skipper was sailing his boat around the world and he had started in Australia and he had made it as far as the Caribbean when he ran out of money and was, was acting as a skipper as a job to get enough money to continue their trip back to Australia. And that was when I got the idea that people did things like this. And from then on, I had this idea in my head that someday I would like to have a boat and go around the world and when, when I met Stephanie and, and I got her involved in the plan, it has changed a little bit to go traveling to different destinations, but very bit she's on board with this as well. Stephanie, how did, how did you get involved? <laughs> well, basically, Brian. Brian introduced <laughs> me to sailing. <laughs> so I think he set the hook before he gave me the whole plan. <laughs> um, no, Brian really introduced me to sailing. Uh, his father, Bruce, uh, had a boat, a 22-foot Tanzer, on the lake where we grew up. And um, Brian and I are from the same town, actually. And so he, we kind of re-met after we had finished college, and um, he started taking me out on the boat on the lake and showing me how wonderful sailing was with beautiful sunny days and beers in the cooler and perfect gentle breezes and I said yeah this is kind of fun I could do this um and then Brian was really active as as a racer so he had gotten me out on some J24s as part of racing crew a couple of times and um that's when I started to realize that it is actually possible to to travel by boat and to live by boat and I started researching for myself if I could really live that way and really uh, the big test was <clears throat> when we moved aboard our first boat road trip, which was a 32-foot west sail. And we both agreed, if we can do this for a year and we love it, then we'll continue on. So um, I would say after the first eight months, I started to like it, <laughs> learning how to live on a boat and really learning a new sailing curve of how to really sail and do things myself. And since then, it's just been not looking back, really. It's been a really enjoyable way to live. So I know we, we're going to get into a subject that you may or may not want to talk about, and I'll, I'll edit it out if you don't, but how do you support yourself while you're sailing? It's a popular question. It is. It is a popular question. <laughs> Especially from the young cruiser world. It is. So we are, we are currently just living on savings from the jobs that we had before we left and started, started cruising. Um, we, we found that on the first boat in the Caribbean, it was very affordable, and our savings were lasting longer than we expected. That is not as true in Europe, but we uh, are still on savings, and we have, we have some time left before we have to go back to the real world and, and get jobs again. At that point in time, do you think you'll keep your boat and then just uh, build up the cruising kitty again and then take off and go sailing or do you think you'll sail sell your boat and plan on adventures in the future yeah i think if we can 
stay on the boat and build up the cruising kitty. I think that would be our first plan. Find a place that we enjoy or find a good job and and put some money in the in the pot. I think that would be what we try first. What are your professions? What did you do before you led the ideal lifestyle? So I was a I was a chemist. I actually worked for a, a company that did pollution scrubbers for coal power plants. And uh, now that now that we've been out and sailing, I've recently, uh, just this year, passed my, my U.S. captain's license test. So I have a 50-ton license now. Okay. And I was a social worker. Um, so I still maintain my social work license in the state of Massachusetts. And I was working at a retirement community. Um, that I really, I really enjoyed. I do like working with the elderly population, and uh, I think I could easily return to, to a career in social work if that were to happen. Before you took off and went sailing, how much of a cruising kitty had you built up before you took off? Okay. Uh, we uh, had planned for. We had three years planned for. Yeah, we we had planned that we thought it was going to cost us about twenty thousand dollars a year to be on the boat. And we saved for uh, three years. So we had about $60,000 uh, and the boat already purchased when we left. And is that about what your month, what your expenses were? Were about 20000 a year or did, that, did it go farther than you expected? It, it went much, much farther than we expected uh, in, in the Caribbean. Um, we spent a lot of time in the Bahamas and we did a lot of fishing and we didn't do a lot of buying. And we spent a lot of time at Anchor and we spent a, a lot less than that earlier. I think we haven't, uh, haven't been in Europe long enough to know for sure yet, and we don't have everything finished, but it'll be closer to that for sailing here. And you bought the boats outright, so you didn't have debt to pay on the boats, or do you have a, a mortgage on the boats? No, we, we bought the boats outright. So you found the boat overseas. How did you go about finding the boat that you uh, eventually bought? Well, we started with a with a uh, list of criteria for a dream boat. <laughs> Since we had been sailing for a couple of years, we were, had a good idea of things that we might like to improve if we were to upgrade. Um, and we took our dream boat list to the internet to see what was for sale. Um, our first boat was a fiberglass hull, and we really did want to switch to an aluminum hull, so that narrowed our choices straight away. So we were really only looking for aluminum boats. Um, the center board was a nice factor, so we were looking for that as well. And basically, we just sort of scoured the internet, uh, all the usual yacht sites to see what was on the market. And we kept on the market for several months um, before we found a few boats of interest, and they all happened to be in Europe. Um, the first one was actually in the Netherlands. And when we were serious about the first one that we wanted to see it, we actually flew to the Netherlands to look at the boat and when it wasn't quite right, we pulled our list together of what else was in Europe, and we made a little road trip with a rental car from the Netherlands down into France and looked at all the aluminum boats that were on our list. Why did you decide you wanted to go with aluminum? What are the advantages of aluminum versus fiberglass? So we really, we've had a lot of people who have been cruising for a long time that have aluminum boats, and they really like how... Uh, how dry they are for one thing and how easy the maintenance is with uh, for for welding repairs and to change the boat if something like that needs to happen and it's a, a very strong material 
and really light so we can get a little more performance out of it than well certainly than we got out of out of the west sail i don't think the west sails are known for performance it's it's true they're they're, they're not but it uh, it did take very good care of us <laughs> so you wanted a lighter boat uh now when i look at a picture on your boat it looks like it's a, a pretty curved hull it's not a hard shine you don't have a chined hull do you or is it uh smooth it is it is a smooth hull it's a it's a round chine uh center border and it actually does have a flat plate on the bottom so that it can uh can actually dry out flat on its own on its own hull okay so if you go into a high tidal area and you settle down on the mud it'll it'll stay upright then it will it'll it'll stay flat we haven't uh we haven't tried it yet, but that's... Uh, we have had it on the hard that way. But we have had it on the hard that way. We've had stands. it lifted out and just set on to a set of flat stands to keep the boat in place to do bottom paint. Now that you've had the boat for about a year, what would you change or add that you did, didn't think of at the time? So far, I would say we're very happy with, with all of our choices. Um, the, the vessel had been used for for short-term cruising, maybe a week here or there. And there were a lot of the liveaboard features that we've been trying to add to make ourselves independent again. We've had to add solar panels and we're looking at putting an SSB in the boat and the, the rig needed to be replaced. So there were a lot of things that needed to be added. Uh, but as far as the boat goes, we've been really happy with our choice. Now, you say you want to add an SSB. Would this be a ham radio or a, or a, a marine single sideband? So we're not, we're not big ham, hams at, at this moment. We haven't had time to play around with it yet. So we're going to start with a marine single sideband. So for people that want to live your lifestyle, give them whatever advice you think they need to think about. Well, I think the most challenging part is just going is to come to the conclusion that you're as ready as you're going to be and whatever else you need is going to come along the way and to just cast off the lines and go. Um, I think once you're out there going, you really learn what you really need and what you really don't need. And the things that are important get done and you can just continue on from there. What would you say? I, Planning I, helps too. <laughs> I, I agree with that. Uh, but, but definitely leaving the dock that, that first time saying goodbye to everything that you have at your home when you leave your home port is is a, a tough decision to make and realizing that that it won't all be sunset cocktails and good times but that <laughs> it'll be that rain you, and strong winds and <laughs> rough waves <laughs> but you will make it through through those parts and when the times are good they are really amazingly good great answer do you have any other gems or any other things we ought to talk about before we call it an interview? Well, if, just to wrap back around to France momentarily with the canals, uh, I think one of our favorite regions was the Beaujolais area, and that was on the Seine River. And it was just a fabulous place to explore. Beautiful scenery, great wine, friendly people. Um, I think that, that was one of our highlights of France was in Beaujolais. And the Seine River was was still, while well, the river was pretty wide at that point, but the current had really calmed down. So it was very, um, very relaxing after the Rhone. And 
the mm. locks were still relatively large, um, although we didn't realize it at the time. <laughs> they were they were still pretty wide and and easy to navigate. So the Sone River area was was very pleasant. And what was the what was the depth of that river? I'm trying to think if I can get up there. So the Sone River is is quite deep. There's still commercial traffic traffic up there, and even some of the river cruise lines go up in that area. So I, yeah. it's in it's probably more than 15 feet. Oh, okay. All right. I can easily get up there. And, and the Rhone River is a big commercial river as well. So uh, at least I could get up that far, I think. Yeah, you, you definitely can get up that far. There's, there are some big, big boats that go all the way up the Rhone to, to Lyon and slightly smaller but still large boats that continue on past there. Uh, there's also, as far as resources are concerned, I, I do want to give sort of a shout out to one of our resources that we use for the French canals. Um, and that is Eurocanals. I think it's just Eurocanals.com. It's it's a site produced by a man named Tom Summers. Um, it was our best information. It's up to date. Uh, everything is user friendly on a computer or on a tablet, and you can use it online or offline. Um, and we found the Eurocanals site by Tom Summers really, really really helpful. And also, if you're planning on doing the phone or the zone. There's really good waterways uh, information, so you can actually track what the currents are doing, what the level of the water is doing. Um, and of course, all that has been sort of rolled into our blog along our travels. But if anyone's interested in that area, I'd be happy to share that information with them so you can really plan um, for what you need to do. All right, I'll put links to your website and I'll find that website and put some links to that in the show notes. That's great information. In fact, I'm gonna try to get a hold of Tom and interview him at some point in time. I think that would be a good interview to do. It might be. He's been uh, really, really helpful. Um, we've exchanged emails, and his site's really workable, and his users do write feedback about their locations, what's changing, and it's, it was good. Thanks so much for coming on. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for asking. It Thanks. was a pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening. If you have some suggestions for future podcasts, drop me a note, franz at medsailor.com. And also, if it's of interest to you, sign up for the email list and get eight free lessons on the ASA 101. This will cover terminology, safety procedures, basic maneuvers, and a few other topics. And lastly, do me a favor and write a review in the iTunes directory. Get out there and go sailing. Joe, you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joe. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you, every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances. You are so right. You've made me very proud. I was just thinking where we might be 10 years from now, you know? <laughs>